0: verses 18 through 20 tonight. Last time we were talking about the, uh, the hope and to which we are called and, and the desire that Paul sets forth for, for us to know what is the hope of our calling or a more literal way of saying is the hope into which we are called. And Let me just read the verses real quick. The uh, verse 18 I hate to jump right into it but we all know the context the eyes of your understanding being enlightened that you may know what is the hope of his calling or again the hope in which you are called and what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints and what is the exceeding greatness of his power to usward who believe according to the working of his mighty power which he wrought in christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places and so as we continue to just think about and consider this you know what i think is in this whole letter is probably the most key portion of the letter to me it's it's important to understand the the greatness of what paul has described in the letter leading up to this point again and I hope this doesn't you know seem like it's just repetition always but I think it's always important to keep these things in the forefront of our mind Paul recognized the 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 immensity of this salvation and this the emphasis on the necessary comprehension or knowledge of um, Of this great salvation when you're faced with a divine reality when you're faced with something greater than you something that's above you and beyond your ability to even conceive the thought of it because again he's going to say these things but this is exactly what is exceedingly above and beyond what we could even ask or think it's salvation itself it's Christ himself being your life being your righteousness and when you're faced with such a reality we have to concede that we are incapable in the light of it that we are insignificant in the light of it and that we are in absolute dependence upon God to do what only he can and we have to submit our soul to that work and what that means is set our heart to know, set our affection to know and God will work upon the soul that submits itself to such a, to such a work of comprehension because I was saying this this morning that the comprehension, the knowledge of God is not just us knowing God that's, that's fine but what is that? It's actually God making his knowledge of all things uh, known in us. It is him awakening the heart to comprehend his perspective of all things. His understanding with regard to your salvation. Because what we've come to is what is exceeding. What is above. And that necessitates a work of God, because the nature of this salvation, um, that to which we've been called to, invited to, it is spirit, it is divine. I mean, it's the very thing that John chapter 3 says, when Nicodemus comes to him, and Jesus said to him, you know, if anyone uh, is not born of water and spirit, he's not able to enter into the kingdom or reign of God. And then he says these words, That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. What he's conveying there is there's an entire change that takes place. When we're born again, we're not just brought back into a fleshly realm and made better fleshly people. We are brought into a spiritual context, and that context demands a divine work. It demands you know, I said it this morning, Brother Sparks says spiritual reality or a spiritual state demands a spiritual sight. And it does. Because where we've come to by the work of the Spirit, by being born of God, is a reality that is not of the flesh, not of the earth, not of men. It's not familiar in any way. The senses of men cannot conceive it. It has to be known by God making it known. And that's the, basically the, the humility we have to approach this with. Uh, we are confronted with divine reality. And having that as our realm in which we live. Every step we take into the positive of knowing the Lord, growing in grace, every step of that journey is dependent upon God. And that's how we have to approach this. This is not just something I decide, hey, I think I'm going to know this. I think I'm going to get a better grasp of this particular spiritual thing. No, you can't do that. It's a, it is a heart that is open to God making known His perspective with regard to it, and unveiling your soul to that. So, when we are brought into the kingdom or reign of God, we are brought into something defined by and governed by spirit and truth. And due to the characteristics, that intrinsic nature of salvation the God who wrought such a work in us and for us has to make the wealth of that, the riches of that known. He's, he says that, the riches, the uh, the glory the riches of his inheritance in the saints. And I'm hoping to get to that part a little bit tonight but I do want to talk about the hope again a little, little more. We'll talk about some of the things we said the last time and go a little further because the calling that has brought us into this hope and again this is not a hope that we yet have this is not God bringing us into something that we still hope for one day will be fulfilled what we've come to is God's hope fulfilled the hope that he set forth in testimony we'll read it in Romans 8 in a moment realized that's the hope we've come to it's what the testimony set forth in its totality. We've come to that hope. It's Paul standing before Agrippa and saying it's for the hope of Israel that I'm standing before you right now accused by them because I'm telling them that Christ has come as the end of that hope, as the salvation that God promised them. And God confirmed it in the raising up of his son. Because what that is showing is that there is a new creation. There is a creation determined and defined by another man altogether. God brought this man forth to be the head of a creation. The identifying face and name of a creation. And what God's desire is in us is to cause our souls to see the face that determines and identifies this new creation and in so doing never look at our face to determine anything again that's the work of that's the work of the revealing of Christ but again it's upon the basis that we have been brought into something that is certain brought into something that is perfect something that doesn't change something that doesn't move something that doesn't get more and more and more what gets What is more and more is our internal comprehension of that great reality to which we've come. That's what grows. That's what develops, is our understanding of it. But the calling of God has brought us into something that is so great that it is way greater than men could ever imagine. And it is so much greater than man himself. I mean, we talked about in the last class. You see your calling, brother. How not many wise and prudent and all of that are called. He's called the nothing. He's called the base things. He's called the despised things. Basically, he's called you. He's called you, whether you be Jew or Greek. But the whole thing was to do this, to bring you to a place where no flesh could boast no flesh could glory. See, that's where we are. We're in the realm of not I but Christ from the very onset of this journey. That's where we start. We start there. We start in the place that is defined by Christ all, in all. And the work of God is to open the eyes of the soul that is a partaker of such a divine fullness to that divine fullness so that we can as I said this morning, rejoice in the fact that our sufficiency is due to His presence in us. His sufficiency determines our standing before God. So that we can rejoice in that instead of fight that and wrestle with that. And we can live in the joy of the grace of God that has made us partakers and not demanding us to be producers. That's a big deal. And the whole calling is that he's called us into Christ who God made unto us righteousness, sanctification, redemption. You know what that does? When you personify these aspects of salvation in Christ and make Christ to be These realities unto us. You know what you've just done? You've removed every consideration of that being a process. You've removed that out of the picture. There's no way Christ being made unto me righteousness can mean I'm in a process of being made more righteous. Those two things are not compatible. It is taken the whole idea that I am processed by God to become something greater and it and it makes it very simple not I but Christ of God not of me that's what we've been called to that's the sobering reality of salvation and it does at the very beginning when you hear such a thing it's it it's a sobering thought But then you begin to grow in the beauty of that. You begin to comprehend how good that is. What good news it is that this truly is nothing of me. That I'm not the arbiter of it. That I'm not the thing that holds it together. It all consists and is held together by him, in him, and as him. And I can rest in the assurance of that. And that's why he would say hey we preach Christ crucified that's the beauty of this because everything we have come to all the realities of salvation is determined by just that. It's determined by the cross by which we are found in him having nothing of our own and so in the light of that hope to which we're called that he is saying that you may know the hope into which you've been called. I wanna I wanna look at a couple of other places that we didn't consider the last time, and then we'll move on. Because Peter writes that we have been born again into a living hope by the resurrection. This is the same thing that Paul has just talked about in Ephesians one. Because all of this, this hope to which we were called, the inheritance, all of this that he's saying that you would know is 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 so because God wrought in Christ this great salvation when he said when he raised him up from the dead and said he made his own right hand it's all based upon that now so in we talked about this a long time ago when we were in the Romans lesson but it it uh, it'll help if we go back and look at this again because what Paul says in Romans 8 is exactly what he's saying here in Ephesians just different ways just in a different manner let me preface what we'll read in Romans 8 by going to Galatians 5 though because this is a verse um, some people wrestle with I've had a couple of questions on it before in Galatians chapter 5 verse 3 and we'll read through verse 6 And I testify again to every man circumcised that he is a debtor to do the whole law. You were freed from Christ, you who in the law are declared righteous. Meaning if you seek righteousness by the law, you have been freed from Christ. Meaning it's the same thing as when you were were in Adam, which is the same as being under the law. You were uh, free from righteousness. But Paul says, when you are a slave of righteousness, being in Christ, you are now free from sin. It's the same thing he's saying here. So you are freed from Christ, you who in the law are declared righteous. From grace you have fallen away. For we, verse 5 of Galatians 5. By the Spirit, by faith, do wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ neither circumcision availeth anything, nor uncircumcision, but faith through love working. What does that mean? It's important that we understand, because again, it's the very same thing Paul is saying here. And it corresponds to what we're going to read in Romans 8. They would say, you're, the, the Judaizers would come to these believers and say, you're not righteous unless you apply circumcision and other aspects of the law to Jesus. You have to add this. And what he's saying is you who find righteousness in the law, you have separated yourself from the grace of God. Meaning you, not that you've lost your salvation, but you have set, stepped outside of the perimeters in which God's knowing of you is true. God's knowing of you is confined within very particular boundaries. Christ himself made unto you righteousness. If you seek righteousness without, outside of the confines of that reality... You have stepped outside of the grace of God and Christ has become of no effect to you. You didn't need him. You're free. You've separated yourself from Christ and basically you're doing this. You're standing here in the holiest of all yourself trying to get God to look at you. You're trying to get God's attention on your own terms. God will not deviate or deter his view of the one in whom his soul is satisfied to look at you. Because his view of reality is settled forever in the face of his beloved. But if you seek righteousness outside of the context of being found in him, having no righteousness of your own, but only the righteousness that is of faith, you have stepped outside of those boundaries. It's the same thing as the Israelites who stepped outside of the boundaries of the law that God had given. What happened to them? They were put outside the camp. Some were stoned to death. Why? Because you have, you have left the protection of the clothing of God that he has clothed you with being the law. The law was a, was a garment of grace, basically, that he put upon his people so that he could relate to them in view of that perfection. Well, he's done so not in a testimonial way for us. He's done so in reality for us. He has given to our soul the perfection of his relationship. He has given to our soul and made our soul, joined our soul as one with the one he loves, with the one he, 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 his relationship is with forever settled. And then we say, Well, I can be righteous by these works, by these efforts. No, you've fallen from grace. You've stepped outside of the boundaries of God's knowing of you. And you're trying to know him now or get him to know you in a way that is contradictory to that singular way in which he's relating to you. But what does he say about those who are, the King James says, we who are spiritual, verse 5, we who are spiritual, he says, we wait. We wait for a for the hope of righteousness. What does that mean? It's not saying we're waiting so that one day we'll be righteous. We're just waiting here until we get righteous and God makes us righteous. That's not what it's about. It's about the soul or men, not immediately. Because they don't see the evidence of righteousness, because here's the Judaizers saying circumcision, these external ceremonies, all of these things that you look to, this is what makes you righteous. And because what they've come to in salvation is of a spiritual nature, you know what they don't see? The evidence of it in the natural. So what do they do? They turn the law and they say man i've got to do these things to be good i've got to do these things to be in right standing with god and what he's saying is that you've you've just stepped off of the sure foundation we who are in the spirit are not to go to these things and look for these ways we are to wait with patience on what the revealing the appearing of the righteousness of God that is already there. We're just here setting the affection of our heart, not saying I hope to God I get righteous one day, but we're saying I want to see the righteousness that you have given to me. I want to see righteousness as it truly is. I don't want to see righteousness as I assume it to be. What I assume it to look like. I don't want that. I want to see the righteousness of God in its perfect form. You know who that is? That's Christ in you. And it's in that heart that God will share his view. Will share his knowledge will share his perspective with regard to that which is already so in heaven, he will make it known in you. And so, you will live just like those who saw the high priest come out on the day of atonement, accepted, and they knew that in that one they were accepted. You know what they did? They lived for another entire year in the glory of his appearing. They lived an entire year in the peace that comes in knowing In Him we are known, in Him we are found, in Him we live and are accepted of God. And it's in that view that we begin to abound in the comprehension of who He is. That's, again, that's spiritual growth. It's a comprehension of His allness in the midst of my nothingness. (laughs) It's not trying to reverse the order is trying to see that's the proper order he is i'm not and that's the order that's always going to be there problem is we're trying to always change that that's never going to change the beauty of it is that's the order god has wrought he is a treasure in a vessel of dirt that never that never changes that dirt never becomes gold that dirt never becomes diamonds that vessel is always an earthen vessel but it is indwelt by a divine treasure and the whole work of God is not to change the construction and constitution of the vessel it is to make known in the vessel the treasure that is present so that the vessel rejoices at to be a vessel indwelt by the treasure. And that's it. And for that vessel that is seeing the greatness of the treasure within, you know what that is? That's enough. That's enough. It's enough to be the vessel in which the treasure that God looks at and says, In him I am well pleased. It's enough to be the vessel in which he dwells. And know that he is made unto me all things. To know that he is my life. And I say those words, and yet the, the dimensions and the greatness of that is beyond those words. It is of eternal consequence. And that's why the seeing of him is forever. That's why the need is, it never ends. The need of beholding this great salvation, to see the riches and wealth of this salvation never ends. But as we talked before we started recording, the basis of that growing, the basis of that seeing is always something that God has settled upon and is forever cognizant of, and that is a finished work by which Christ is made unto us all things. That he is our life and our righteousness, and that never changes. And in our ignorance, we can always go back to that and stand short. Because we're always ignorant in some way. We're always falling short in understanding. But the beauty of it is we're never falling short in reality. We have all things. It's Paul saying to the Corinthians, and if you look at a church that is more screwed up than the Corinthian church, let me know. So that church had everything backwards. Everything's messed up. He's having to correct everything they do. And yet at the beginning of the letter he says, hey you are coming behind in nothing as you await the appearing of the Lord. <laughs> and if he can say that of them, he can say that of all. Because that's true of us all. As we await his appearing, as we await the revealing of our life Guess what? He is our life. As we are awaiting the, peer, the appearing of the righteousness of God, however many times that happens, because it will continually happen over and over and over again, and the dimensions of it will get greater and greater in every appearing of him as my righteousness and holiness and all of that, what never changes is that he is that righteousness in its full dimension. In its perfection. It's just my soul is coming to an ever greater view of who he is. An ever greater appreciation of who he is. I'm becoming cognizant of how great a salvation he has made unto me. And therefore I can rest assured in such. And allow God to carry me on in the realm of the perfection that he's brought us to by his grace. So, to continue on in this thought of the hope, this is, again, what Paul says: We wait, who are spiritual, we wait on this hope of righteousness by faith. We wait to see the righteousness of God. That was the hope fulfilled. The hope of God, the hope of Israel fulfilled. We don't go out and try to produce it. We wait on his appearing to see a reality God has bestowed that he has imputed to us we just wait to see the appearing we don't go out and try to do it that's what Abraham did we wait for the one who promised and has performed it to reveal what he has performed so with that in mind we go to Romans chapter 8 in Romans chapter 8 Paul is talking about this very hope And again, when we're talking about this, we have to keep in mind everything he says in chapter 7 and chapter 8 specifically. um, Because this this is not a separate issue. What we're about to read is not a separate issue from what he's talking about at the beginning of chapter 8. What he's talking about at the beginning of chapter 8 being one who is now free by the law of the spirit of life from the law of sin and death and having the righteousness of the law fulfilled in him, in those words, he's actually showing a personal experience where this reality has taken place. That the vanity and the emptiness that he, chapter 7, exposes has now been filled by the fullness of another. That the righteousness that was never present as a man under the law, Christ in him has already fulfilled it and is the fullness of that righteousness. That's the liberty in which he now lives. And though, and therefore, when he goes into this, because even again in my Bible it says the future glory. That's the heading that my Bible puts in it. it because they point it toward the future. Because of course they do. Because most people can't understand this is a present reality. Um, We'll start in verse 18. I reckon the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory being. This is a present tense, not what shall be. In the Greek it's present tense. It's not worthy to be compared with the glory being revealed in us see that he's just made the transaction he's just shown that these things that we're going through because of the present reality of God in us it's not even worthy to compare it it's nothing compared to this beauty and glory that is being revealed in us by God for the earnest expectation of the creature waits for the manifestation of the sons of God Now we have talked about that in the past not about people still waiting on us to manifest God to them as sons of God. This is about the creation that was under the law. The Jew, those under the law, were waiting for the moment in which there would be a manifestation of who the true sons of God were. Now who's the true sons of God? Paul defines it as those who are in Christ are Abraham's seed. The moment a soul came to be a partaker of Christ himself, therein begins the whole manifestation of the true sons of God. Therein is the true sons of God made manifest. Why? Because they don't just have a testimony or a natural lineage. They have the fullness of Christ abiding in them. They've come to the very hope of God realized. They've come to the promises of God Yes. And Amen. Therein is manifested who the true sons of God are. Okay, and we don't have time to get into that. You can go back to the Romans, Romans eight lessons for that. Uh, verse twenty. This is where we get into the hope, because the creature was made subject to vanity, not willingly but by reason of him who has subjected the same in hope. Because the creature itself shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. Again, shall be is not in the uh, future tense. It is in a past, basically a present past, the past having present consequence. What does that mean? It means that under the law, God subjected men to their own emptiness. He subjected to their own vanity. That's what the word means, emptiness. But specifically, the word vanity doesn't just mean empty. It means empty as to result or goal. There was a lot of activity by men under the law. And men found great righteousness in it, self righteousness in it. Paul talks of himself finding that. But the result was never found. That's Romans 7, right? Everything I try to do, I can't do. When I try to do good, evil's present. That's emptiness as to result. That's not emptiness as to effort and work and zeal, that's emptiness as to the goal being reached. It can never be reached in this context. Men trying even under a divinely given law could not reach that end and God subjected them under the law for that very reason so that the end could never be produced by men it could only be given by God and brought in by God himself. That's the whole purpose of it. So God subjected creation to a vanity to its own emptiness and they didn't they didn't uh go there willingly they didn't volunteer he did that he subjected them but he did it in hope he had an expectation for this he had an end in mind and the end was that that creature subjected to vanity which was basically The corruption of sin and death that was in him. The law of sin and death that ruled from within. That that creature would be delivered from that internal bondage of corruption. What does that mean? What what does that entail? An entire change of the inner man. To be brought from death into life. From sin to righteousness. It's an internal transaction. Brought from the kingdom of darkness into the reign of the beloved. That's what Romans 5 even talks about, being brought into the rule of the grace of God instead of the rule of sin and death. This is the whole point of God subjecting men under the law. It was so that the end of the law's coming, which was the righteousness of which it testified, would bring men from the corruption of an internal state of death, to the incorruptibility of Christ being made unto them righteousness and life and perfect holiness. That's the whole work. So that the men under such a system would have this transaction of God take place in them and come to the glorious liberty of the children of God. This is the liberty that Paul understood that every believer lives in. It's a liberty of not I, but Christ. And that's why he tells the Galatians, Stand fast in this liberty, wherewith Christ has made you free. This is the liberty. He has liberated you from an internal state of death and corruption. Read 1 Corinthians 15. We've talked about that often. That's exactly what 1 Corinthians 15 is addressing. This internal work of salvation that brings men from the first man to the second man, from the earthly to the the heavenly, and from the mortal to immortality, from corruption to incorruptibility. That's the whole work of salvation. That is described as the resurrection itself. That's what God has wrought in us. That is God's hope in which he subjected an entire creation, now realized. That's why it can be said, it is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Because Christ in you is that hope fulfilled. It's a realized expectation. It's not giving you hope, it is God's hope fulfilled. I think that's what we have to keep in mind. Now he goes on and we'll talk about this a little more but in verse 24 let's just jump down a little bit 24 we are saved by hope but hope that is seen is not hope for what a man seeth why does he yet hope for but if we hope For what we see not. Now listen to the word. It's not what we have not. It's what we see not. When a hope is seen, it's no longer hope. It's no longer something you hope for. and It's not something still expected. Because what man, when he sees a thing, why does he yet hope for it as if it's something yet to come? This is the point he's trying to make. If we hope, For what we see not, then do we with patience wait for it. That's what he just said in what we read in Galatians. We who are spiritual wait on the righteousness. Why? Because you may not see righteousness. So you go about and you're falling under the you know, the weight of men telling you this is what you do to be righteous. This is how you live to be righteous. These are the things and the hoops you have to jump through to be righteous. You have to be circumcised. You have to observe days and months and eat that, touch this, taste not, handle this not. He's saying, no, no. We who are in the Spirit wait. To do what? To see that hoped for reality of righteousness because we see it in the appearing of christ our life we see it in the face of jesus we don't see it any other way our expectation toward it is not to see it in ourselves but to see it in the appearing of him who is made unto us that righteous who is made unto us perfect salvation and so when he says by hope we are saved, what is he talking about? Cuz it seems like a real weird way of saying it. our salvation. And Paul is saying it this. Our salvation is with the within the context of this hope brought to fulfillment. Our salvation is this hope fulfilled. Meaning Our salvation is the result that men subjected to their own vanity could never come to. God brought us there by his grace. In him we have a hope fulfilled. Our salvation is God's hope fulfilled. And that's why he's praying, not that they would get it, but that they would see it that they would comprehend reality as it truly is and has been imputed by the work of God. Now, let's tie a couple things together. The salvation that has bestowed unto us all spiritual blessings is that which was predetermined by God, that which was foreordained. That's what chapter 1 of Ephesians begins talking about. Now, during God's dealing with men, there was a time in which he had to subject mankind within the prison of his own emptiness and corruptibility. And this first demonstrates the vanity innate to men, it exposes the corruption. Of sin. Secondly, it sets forth an expectation, a hope that he would in due time or at an appointed time the time appointed of the Father that he would impute to the souls of men those who would come to live under the headship and dominion of his beloved he would bestow to them what their vanity and emptiness could not arrive at. What their emptiness kept from them. So Paul now presents that the state of the believer called unto God. Invited into this reality. Is in the hope that has been realized. And consummated in the resurrected one himself. Again that's what Peter says. We have been born again into A living expectation by the resurrection. What does that mean? It means that the new birth has brought us into that expectation that God set forth in testimony. But we have received it in the person of the risen Christ. That expectation fulfilled. That's what being born again is. It's you have come into the very thing hoped for. So, in Romans 8, we see the creature subject to this empty fruitlessness with regard to divine efficacy and and result. And again, you see that distinction in Romans 7 and 8. So you see the hope of an imprisoned soul realized, brought to completion in the coming of the law of life, the law of the Spirit of Christ, imputed to indwelling the soul. And this is why in the same chapter, in in chapter 8, he begins to express this in terms of this eschatological framework, what men think is a futuristic framework, showing that our salvation in Christ is not only men's hope realized, but God's hope realized. It's God's expectation fulfilled. You remember, I think when we were in Psalms 119, there was a verse, I don't have it right at the top of mind, but I remember it. there was a word that is used, meaning that the coming of the, you know, it's speaking of the testimony of the word. And it's saying basically when the reality that the word testifies of comes, there would be this moment where men can go, ah, oh, kind of exhale in relief, knowing it's finally here. It's finally arrived. Well that's salvation. Salvation is that moment where the soul comes into God. <laughs> let, let, let me say this, I, I can't think of a good way to say it. Salvation is the moment is the moment where men's souls are brought into the reality that God looks at and says, Finally. It has come. It has arrived. That's my salvation. That's your salvation. The revealing of Christ is when God shares with the soul that moment that he had in the seeing of his son raised. It is when he can say in the soul and make the soul aware of that moment where he says, It is done. It is fulfilled. My purpose, my my preordained desire and hope has been brought to pass. That's what the revealing of Christ is. It is It is that which God looks at in satisfaction being made known to my soul as the life of the soul. As the As the standing before God that the soul possesses that it does not that soul has no other standing before God except that perfect satisfactory object unto whom God looks at and says this is the delight of my heart now tell me what else is there what else can there possibly be greater than that? When that soul has within it the very sun that he looks at and is eternally satisfied, and then the beauty of it is God makes that son known in that soul. He's already present. That's what I'm telling you. As as those who are born of God, he dwells there as the satisfaction of God and secures the soul in that satisfaction. But the beauty of seeing him is when the satisfaction comes to be seen in the beauty and sufficiency of another man. And my soul can rest in the assurance of a salvation that's never going to change never going to diminish because it's not of me to any degree at all. My soul is the dwelling place of God's satisfaction. That's good news. Is good news. And the goodness of God is that he is willing to share his satisfaction not only as a reality but as an ever-ongoing realization to show my soul the wealth of it, the dimensions of it, how beautiful this salvation truly is. If that's not a journey that you want, I don't know what journey there is. I don't want a journey where I'm just trying my best to be like Jesus. I want the journey to be, I want to see the Jesus who has made unto me all the things I can't be, I want to see a Christ who is greater than me. I want to see a salvation that is of Him and not of me. That is reality in its perfect form. And that's the only reality God knows and that's the only reality God shares. Men can share with you a bunch of man-made, self-centered things. God shares one perspective. And that's it. And God's sharing from the moment, and you see this in the creation, natural creation, from the moment that he looks at his new creation and says, it is very good, because he looks at the sun and says that. From the moment that he finds that satisfaction and can say in the face of that sun, it is very good, and finds his own Sabbath, It is from that basis from then on that he speaks to the hearts of men. Draws men to such a rest and makes known in the hearts of men the rest they've been drawn to. That's the beauty of this. It is my hands are off of it. And when that is seen in the face of Christ men do not and cannot still hope for something as if it's unrealized. As if there's some missing element complete in Him becomes not only the thing I hear in the preaching but the reality I'm beholding in the face of Jesus Christ. And those words ring with absolute universal truth instead of huh? I don't know I I don't know if I'm complete or not that's where most people still live that's why the necessity of seeing is present always before us we who are spiritual when we do not see the thing that is present we wait to see the reality that is present we don't go about trying to produce something we don't go about trying to make it happen We wait as those who are indwelt by something that anchors our soul in the midst of our not knowing. We wait to see reality as it is defined in the face of Jesus Christ. We wait on His appearing. We wait on Him to show us Himself as the righteousness we possess as believers. Christ our life appeared. We do not yet see these things. Do not yet comprehend them. Because we don't. And that's what I was talking about today. That's the rest that Paul presents. And and we'll stop here. But this is Philippians. um, In Philippians. Let me get to it. Chapter 3. He says this verse 15 let us therefore as many as be perfect that means complete those who have come to the complete goal to the end of the matter be thus minded what is that I want to know him in this context I want to apprehend that for which I am apprehended I want to lay hold an understanding of what has already laid hold of me. That's, you see the basis of that understanding? The basis of knowing is God's knowing. The basis of our knowing is God's knowing of us. That secures it. And you know what it does? It gives us a place of rest, Sabbath, peace. That's the basis of this growth. That's the basis of knowing as we are known. It is, let us therefore, as many as be per- as, as are perfect, be thus minded. And here's, the, here's just a perfect way he ends this. If in anything you are otherwise minded, meaning you consider it in another way, you think it's this way and not this way you hear me say it's perfect and you say I don't know about that but yet you're in Christ here's the thing if you be otherwise minded rest assured of this one thing God shall reveal even this unto you see I'm not here trying to convince anybody of anything and that's, that's I'm glad of that because I know this There's a lot of different perspectives, a lot of different views. There's a lot of different levels as far as an understanding of salvation. But there is not a different salvation. There is not a different Christ. If Christ is in you, you have all things. And that's what secures it. If you are known of God. You are known of God completely. And if you do not yet understand these things. God will reveal them unto you. You're not going to lose your salvation because you haven't seen. Nothing's going to change. He still anchors your soul in reality, but you can rest assured if you set your heart just to know Him as He is, and you subject your heart in full dependence upon God to make known His perspective in you, if you are otherwise minded, in any way shape or form, with regard to any aspect of your salvation, God is faithful to reveal to you that reality. Because that's his pleasure. That's his pleasure. Because he doesn't want a soul indwelt by reality to continue to be ignorant of reality. And then he goes and says, Nevertheless, whereto we have already attained, that means an understanding, what you have seen, Walk in that. Just walk in the assurance of what he has made known to you. And just wait on him to make known unto you the rest of it. Don't stress out. I was stressed out forever thinking that realization equaled reality. And the whole time, reality was keeping me and holding me and sustaining me. And God just wanted to make my soul aware of a reality that was ever-present and never-changing. That's the assurance for us who are in him. If we do not know, wait, set your heart, and he will make known his salvation in your soul. So, we'll stop there, guys. Amen. Wow, that was so good. Amen. Let me read. Let me read this real quick. I just yeah. this is something I have to read to you guys, just to show you the absurdity of how people see these things. When Paul says he pressed on to know the Lord, here's what they said. This is from the Robertson Word Picture. I look at it. I read it. I, I use it as a as a resource at times. But here's what he said when he speaks of Paul saying, "I press on to the high calling and the high calling of Christ Jesus." He says the goal. Now look at what he's talking about. The goal. That's the end of it. At a race, the goal is when you stop, right? You're, you've reached it. Right. Okay. Right. He says the goal continually keeps moving forward. As we press on. But is never out of our sight. You know what that is? That's a carrot that is continually in the face of the horse. But can never be eaten. That is a ridiculous statement. Saying the more we pursue, the goal keeps moving on. No. The goal is where you start your pursuit. You start your pursuit having arrived at the goal by new birth. That's where you start this journey at the goal at the finish line. That's why Paul say, "Don't let any man beguile you of the prize you have." The goal doesn't keep changing and moving. The goal is where we start. See, that is a perversion of this that gives you no. True place of rest and gives you no real basis of growth. You're just ever trying to attain something that in truth has already attained you. You know, you're trying to always apprehend as a missing thing something in which God has already apprehended you in reality. God has brought you to the goal. The goal is his son. And that doesn't keep moving. He's a present and abiding reality. And the soul is to grow in the knowledge of the present and abiding reality that Christ is. And God will make him known to us if we just desire to see. If we want to know him, God will make him known. That is a simple thought and a simple thing but it's not simple unless you realize you begin this journey at the goal you begin this at the finish line you begin this at the one that says I am the beginning and the end Amen. and then then the knowing of him begins so we'll stop there this time I promise Oh, oh, oh.